0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We are headed back into Exodus this morning. It's been a, a little brief... Uh, kind of uh, sabbatical from our time in Exodus, but this morning we get back into it and we enter into the thick of the law, the portions that you skip over when you read in your quiet times maybe, nobody's judging you, Uh, but these portions can be a bit obscure. I have an exercise for us this morning. I thought we would stir up some energy before we start talking about oxen falling in pits and other things. I thought we would try and get you involved, okay? So I want to see if you can name these slogans, okay? So uh, the first slogan we have is, just do it. Nike, right? It's probably on somebody's t-shirt here this morning. What about this one? Have it your way. Burger King, yeah. You guys like your fast food. I know how you owe. How about this one? Guys, I'm just going to tell you, you want to bow out on this one, right? Because you're worth it. L'Oreal, all right, L'Oreal. Now, I just want to highlight something here that's happening with these slogans, right? Notice that all of these are kind of innately affirming about who we are. Just do it, because you're worth it, because you can have it your way. It's just affirming of, of what you are and who you are. You can accomplish what you set out to do. I want to put one more slogan in front of you this morning, do what thou wilt. So are you familiar with this? This is the phrase from Alistair Crowley, a famous occultist from the early 19th or late 19th, early 20th century. This man was uh, responsible for pagan worship rituals and other things. Notice that at the heart of it, it sounds so much like our modern day slogans. Take out the vows and the wilts, do what you will, and it sounds like have it your way or just do it, doesn't it? The pagan rituals of old have become the modern day mantras of our present. Now, it's interesting by way of contrast to contrast that with what the New Testament defines as sin. In 1 John 3, uh, we hear John say that sin is lawlessness. In Romans 14, uh, Paul describes sin. He says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin is that inclination that we have to be self-directed. It's the heart of our modern era, which tells you to simply do you, to be true to yourself. It never confronts you. It only affirms you and assumes that acceptance means affirmation of all of our conduct. So the truth of our matter this morning is this, that the more self-defined we become, the more distant from God we become. The tragedy of our modern era is this. We, while we press further and further into our self-definition, we grow further and further from the God who made us to dwell with him. And if we we're to know God and walk with God as we were made to do, we have to submit to his way of living. See, as we kind of investigate these two or three chapters where God kind of just spells out a portion of his law, I think what we're going to find is this, that God gives his word to dwell with his obedient people. God gives his word to dwell with his obedient people. Now, as we kind of walk through this, we're going to see these five different emphases. And and honestly, it's really hard to put a rubber band around some of these laws. You'll be talking about how to treat slaves, and all of a sudden there will be kind of this sharp right-hand turn to some other subject. But as we kind of go through this law, we'll see it work in these five different categories. First, God cares about life in 21, 1 through 27. Second, God cares about recompense or or repaying someone for their lost property in 21, 28 through 22, 15. Third, God cares about people, 22, 18 through 23, 9, specifically about justice. And we'll talk about that concept a little bit. Finally, God cares about rest in 23, 10 through 19 as he initiates patterns of Sabbath and clarifies patterns of Sabbath for the land and for his people and otherwise. And then we're going to circle back around this morning and come back to the front end of our passage where God makes provision when we don't care like he does. See, the upshot is this this morning. God gives his law so that we learn to care about the things he cares about because if you and I are left to ourselves, we'll be self-rooted and are concerned. We'll be like Alistair Crowley, do what thou wilt. I want to dive in this morning. We have a lot to cover, and I'm afraid we might go over our time, but we'll, we'll fight through it, okay? First, let's talk about how God cares about life. Now, if we look at, at Genesis or Exodus chapter 21, uh, we start into this discussion about slaves. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 27, we see that God cares about life. And in verses 1 through 11, he gives us instruction about how men and women are to enter into the process of slavery. Verses 1 through 6 lay out how it works for men, and verses 7 through 11 works out how it works out for women. And so there's this defined process. If you look in verses 5 through 6, there's even this discussion about if a man becomes a slave and he starts a family, what recourse does he have? he can uh, go to his master and enter into this kind of uh, option of eternal slavery not eternal but lifelong slavery to his master the truth is these slaves had rights they were to be slaves for seven years 21 verse 2 when you buy a hebrew slave he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing Slaves who started families have a process laid out for them about how they can stay together as a family in verses 4 through 6. Additionally, it makes provision for female slaves taken as a wife in verses 7 through 11. At the end of her sixth year, she was to be bought or to be married into the family, or she can continue as a servant. Verses 9 through 10 make sure that she's not mistreated, that if uh, uh, an owner takes her in as a wife, that she still is, is treated as well as other wives. The next section, it focuses on murder. And the tie seems to be this, whether giving your life in service or taking a life in murder, God cares about human life. And so, 21, 12 through 27, it focuses around this word strikes, right? We see it used in verses 12 and 15 and 18 and 20 and 22 and 26. It's this idea that uh, whether you plan to or whether you didn't plan to, anybody who strikes another person and puts them to death is in violation of the law. And there's certain stipulations about what's to be happening there. Look at verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from the altar that he may die. See, it differentiates between what we might call premeditated murder and manslaughter, and it gives certain rights and privileges to those people who are caught in a compromised Position, right? Those accused of murder had particular rights to help guarantee a legal process that it would keep them safe and healthy in the meantime. But still, death and injury are serious matters to God. Verses 18 and 19 make provision for a person who's unable to work because of being struck by another person. Verses 20 20 and 21, 26 and 27 tell us what happens when a slave is hit by his master. If you were a a master, hitting a slave is kind of a dicey thing, right? You could do it, but you would risk losing this servant. Um, So you did so at your own risk. It also speaks to man-stealing. We call it kidnapping today, but man-stealing has a long history of kind of taking someone into custody and entering them into forced labor. Verse 16 says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Just side note, whatever we think about slavery, the notions we have floating around in our head are probably more under the notion of man-stealing, just something to think about. God's law gives a principle for a limited punishment. This is important. Look at 21, 33 through 35, excuse me, 23 through 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is the... the the foundation of what we call lex talionis law. That's a Latin phrase that means law of retribution. This is the backbone of our modern sense of law that we have today. Uh, It's this idea that the punishment should fit the crime that was given to, or that that it's meant to punishment. If if the eye was ruined, that law saw to an equal punishment. This principle becomes a, a cornerstone of God's law in the Old Testament. I kind of want to fast forward here to the next section. God cares about recompense. See, if God gives laws uh, in, in this first section about slaves and death and other things, he goes on and he starts to talk about ruined or stolen goods, talks about animals that are lost and fields that are ruined, and then also even daughters that are seduced, and we'll talk through that a little bit. But in 21, 18 through twenty-two fifteen, God cares about recompense. Verses 28 through 36, God commands restitution for killed or injured animals. God makes laws for animals. These are there are provisions for when someone's ox was gored. And I know you guys are deeply concerned about your ox this morning, but yes, there are laws and provisions made. There's uh, provisions made for uh, when an animal falls into someone else's pit. And the takeaway this morning might be to cover all your pits, right? God commands about restitution for various goods in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 22. There are laws about those who steal livestock and what they have to pay back when they're caught. God makes laws for fields when they're burned accidentally in verses 5 through 6 and what happens there. If we look at verses 16 through 17... We get another sense in chapter 22. God commands restitution for a seduced daughter. Look what he says. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Her father utterly, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Notice this man who seduces a woman is to marry the daughter. Inherent here is a view of marriage that uh, has a high view of sexual relationships, that sex is reserved for the context of marriage, and when it's violated, when it's not found outside of that context, it has certain consequences that are tied to it. This is going to be stated again and again in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament If sex is for the confines of marriage, uh, that's viewed as an antiquated idea today. It's worth noting that this has existed existed as the primary ethical standard across generations. And now, as Al Mohler and others have pointed out, uh, that was only uh, kind of questioned, the sexual ethic was only questioned after the advent of birth control in the 1960s. I don't know why I went on that little rant, but follow with me, right? Notice that also in this in these verses, the seducer the the man who uh kind of plays upon this woman is to pay the father the bride price he's to pay the cost he's to make commitment right let's just pause for a second here and just say, what on earth is happening? You know we have this situation where where Israel is freed from uh slavery to Egypt and they're uh kind of delivered uh miraculously from the hands of pharaoh and the egyptian army they're brought out into the wilderness where god provides for them god ushers them to mount sinai and he gives them the ten commandments as he thunders his voice from mount sinai and then we get these kind of really particular instructions about what god desires for his people And you're saying, man, it just feels like God just tapped the brakes for us for a second. Why did we have all of this momentum to now hear about these pedantic issues in the law? Well, I think what God is doing is he's showing his people how to care like he does. God is showing us how we are supposed to care about our life and well-being like he cares about our life and well-being notice that none of these situations are meant to be exhaustive they do seem a bit particular at times but it's not hard to imagine scenarios that uh this law doesn't necessarily cover for us like just imagine what what about a slave injured doing regular service to his master what if he's meant to chop down trees and he accident accidentally loses the finger or whatever else what happens then what about a, a daughter who seduces a man what about a uh, fight between two men who are equally at fault see the, the law doesn't cover these particularities and and so we step back and we say this is not meant to be exhaustive what this is meant is to help us pinpoint the heart of our god to kind of hear how God would have us interact in these various and sundry circumstances and to know more about God's design and God's care for his people, that he might kind of uh, lay over us the projection of his character and his love. See, God is looking to reorient the hearts of his people away from themselves. Just think about this for a second. Israel spent 400 years in slavery to a particular people. And by the the culmination of that, we read in in Exodus chapter 2 that they were vastly mistreated, Exodus chapter 1, that their own children were being put to death, that they were being beaten, taken advantage of. See, Israel is at risk for a particular uh, outcome here, as we read in Exodus chapter 20, and 22 and 23. They're, they're at risk that they themselves will start to treat one another like slaves because that's all they've known for some 400 years, that they will impose upon themselves rights and authority, that they'll kind of impose upon one another this rule and be ruled mentality. And so what they're prone to is just more abuse. Instead, God is instructing them in his good way. He's reprogramming them in light of his gracious deliverance to live in line with his ways. And so he's establishing a way in which he might dwell with his people as they learn about his heart through his law. See, this morning, whether you realize it or not, you and I, we need reprogrammed too. You too were enslaved to a harsh master, or you might still be enslaved to a harsh master. Paul tells us in Romans 6, he says that we were slaves to sin. And that sin always required more than we had and gave out more than it promised. Uh, That is, we live beneath the weight of a sin-minded heart. Our every inclination was to ourselves and away from God. And as such, we are prone to become a law unto ourselves, to do what Crowley said, do what thou wilt. Our modern day slogans are strange, right? We say these things like, in fact, I've even said these things to my kids and I publicly repent. I say, you do you, man. I have not said any of these other ones, just so you know. Don't condemn me. I did say you do you, but be true to yourself. I've never said that to my children. Don't ever expect me to do that. Oprah told us to find our truth. Aren't these just Crowley's statements repackaged? And isn't Crowley just a repackaging of Genesis 3? Did God really say? There's a reason this morning you and I need reprogrammed. I had a dentist appointment this week had a filling done in the back of my teeth, mouth. Wow, it's going to be a long morning. It came to me this morning that there's a reason I don't do my own dental work. Imagine trying to get the proper balance of anesthesia to be awake enough to pull out your own wisdom teeth, to scrape out the cavity that you have in just the right way. I would cause more pain than I avoided, wouldn't I? See, such is the case with our spiritual self-direction. Those who are spiritually self-directed will invariably cause more pain than they solve. And when their years are gone, they will leave behind a wake of confusion and difficulty. This be a warning to us this morning. Our sense of right and wrong, our sense of righteousness is so askew from the heart of God, and the only thing we'll create is heartache. When we pursue our wisdom, we need to hear these words of God. We need to hear and see the projection of God's heart, His love, His care for humanity, so that we can be reprogrammed. We can understand Now, unless we think this is just about information transfer, about the rules that are kind of laid out by God, I think this next section invites us to something different. We don't just need information. We need someone who's present with us. We need someone who's not just transferring the rules over to us, someone who's bound up with us. And and I think what happens in this latter section of the laws, 22 through 18 uh, through 23, we see that God is present with his people in a unique way. So I'm going to go on kind of laying out these categories of the law. And at the end, we're going to kind of button it up and put kind of a ribbon on it and see how God was present with these Israelites. The third thing we see is that God cares about people particularly he cares about justice now first this section has a few points uh, that we have to uh, ab- about how we relate to him uh, if we look at 22 18 through 20 we see these prescriptions of death for certain categories of people if you were a sorceress you were to die If you were someone who had laid with an animal with bestiality, you were to die. By the way, that was probably a pagan fertility rite that was being abused by Israelites that they were kind of, you know, shutting down because it leads into verse 20. Anyone caught worshiping other gods was to die. Verses 29 through 30 give us specific instruction about how to make offerings to God in, in chapter 22. So what happens is in the midst of all of this, about these discussions about what God wants us to do and how we treat other people and how we bring offerings to Him, He also gives instruction about how to treat the down and outs of our society. This is the sojourner, the fatherless, and the the impoverished person. See, particular interest is given to this concept of justice. I'm going to ask you to look at chapter 23, verse 2, where the law says this, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Or if we go back down further in 23.6, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his Lawsuit. Notice the particularities of what's sped out, spelled out here. Lending money to the poor shouldn't come with interest in chapter 22:25, It's crazy, isn't it? Have you ever stepped into one of these cash to check places or check to cash? It works the opposite way. You got to bring them the check and then they hand you the cash. They, they charge 20 to 25% interest on whatever loans they might give. It's, it's a blatant manipulation of poverty. Bearing witness in courts is strictly prohibited. Bearing false witness, excuse me, bearing false witness in courts is strictly prohibited, especially as it affects the impoverished. If we look at verse 3 of chapter 23 and verse 6, we're supposed to uh, uh, not show partiality to the poor, but also not pervert justice against the poor. You understand then that we're not supposed to be on the side of the poor or against the poor as it pertains to lawsuits. We are to be about justice and not about the concept of perverting justice brought to those in our midst. 23, 10 through 19 lays out this uh, pattern of rest that God wants to bring. First, there's three different kinds of rest that are given here. In verses 10 through 11, there's rest for the land, Right? Uh, Every seventh year, you were supposed to let this land lay fallow. Look at 2311, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. See, there was this concept of gleaning, that if you had a field, you were to plant it, and you weren't supposed to harvest the edges or certain portions of it so that the poor in your community could come and glean these fields and find provision for themselves. And if they didn't come, guess who else would come? The animals that lived in your area would come and they would be provided for by the abundant fields. But it started with you not overworking your field. So every seventh year, that field would lie fallow and it would be replenished and renewed It's not just land. Look at verses 12 through 13. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. See, God is interested in human refreshment through the process of Sabbath. And then there's festivals and uh, harvest festivals in verses 14 through through 19, three different Festivals are related to us, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Harvest, and the Feast of the Ingathering. All three are associated with harvest. So what's laid out then is this time of work, this time of of grinding out uh, labor and planting and cultivating, and then this time of rest and renewal. These rhythms of work and rest and work and rest that God was inviting us to. It's important to see that all of these things envision God in their midst. I'm just going to hit some highlights here. God promises to hear the cry of the oppressed people in chapter 22. He says, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. He says it again in verse 27. And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God assumes his presence when they sacrifice. In chapter 23, none shall appear before me empty-handed. He's in their presence. He's in their midst. They'll appear before him. He promises his reaction and correction at wrong. In chapter 22, verse 24, my wrath will burn and will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. See, the upshot is that God isn't just giving these directions and ascending back into the heavens. He's not just kind of shouting out, hear ye, hear ye, and then retreating back into the castle, as it were. God is present with them and assumes that he will continue to be with them. God is present in the midst of these people. Thus, the very purpose of the giving of these laws is that he could dwell with them. They could dwell with him. To God is gracious in his law-giving. He tells us how to care like he does. And uh, chapter 20, verse 22, chapter 21, 1. See, these laws, they, they seem antiquated. They seem out of touch with us. But they show us the heart of God. These laws show us that God cares about people. That he cares about how we treat one another. He cares about how we treat animals and land. Further, that God is initiating a, a God-filled world. I remember reading in uh, Gordon Wenham's commentary on, on the book of Leviticus, and he describes this idea that when the Israelites would receive the law, it, it really kind of transformed their view of the world. Because now as they engaged the world, they saw everything as clean or unclean, to be partaken of with joy or not to be touched. Everything in the world is either for us or not to be partaken of, right? Perhaps you haven't thought about it this way, but God's laws are an expression of his grace. It's his grace to inform us of who he is, to to reorient us, to reprogram us to his way and free us from our bondage to our own will. Christian, God's rules are a grace to you. How many times do we think about God's rules, his commands, even in the New Testament or Old Testament alike, and we think of them as limitations, boundaries, boundaries? Buzz kills. I remember once I was was asked uh, as a counselor at a church to uh, work with a a child who had autism. And so we were describing why he should obey his parents. And we were in Ephesians chapter 6, which quotes from Exodus chapter 20 about children obeying their parents. And Ephesians 6 and Exodus 20 use this phrasing, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so we use this phrase and we talked about this circle of protection, that when we obeyed our parents, we were living or dwelling in this protected place, this safe place that was okay for us to be in. And this poor young man was so confused. And the first question out of his mouth is he said, okay, but we'll... They bring me dinner in the circle of protection. He was very literal, right? See, we exist in safety, in obedience to our God. The longer I live, the more I realize that God, breaking God's law is unsafe. Pre sex spreads disease, but it promotes jealousy and anger. Theft, adultery, coveting are quick paths to ministry. The second table commands are a guide to a painless life, but the first table commands are a guide to a joy-filled life. So God is gracious to tell us about who he is but there's something else bound up in our passage that we haven't discussed yet. If we were to go back to chapter 20 and verses 22 through 26, which Jesse read for us this morning, I want to invite you to look at that passage again. Chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. See, In this, we see that God makes provision when we don't care like he does. When we don't, when we evidence our disunity with him through our actions. Look at what it says. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Listen to this. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for you wield your tool on, if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up the steps by, to my altar, that your nakedness is not exposed on it. What on earth is happening here? God has spoken from heaven. If we were kind of just back up a few verses, we have this discussion between Moses and the people of Israel because God has thundered his commandments from Mount Sinai and the people are trembling in fear at the voice of God and saying, hey, don't allow allow God to speak to us. Moses, you speak to us on God's behalf. And so here's what's happened is the Israelites have been freed. They've been miraculously delivered. They've been traveling through wilderness. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've seen God defeat the Egyptian army. They've seen miracles happen as each morning they collect their bread from the ground. As God brings manna every day, they are miraculously delivered. And when they get to the mountain of God to hear the words of God, they back up. God is too much we're at risk in this moment of losing the very thing that's going to define these people losing this relationship with God because the people of God are too afraid to hear his voice so Moses will go but notice the first commandment he gives to them in verse 22 you have seen that you yourselves uh, you have seen for yourselves that i have talked with you from heaven you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. The temptation was to make a proxy, to create something that would stand between them and God, that would hear for them, that they could worship, that was manageable. It was silver, it was gold. It would talk, well, it wouldn't talk to them like God would. To kind of back away from Mount Sinai, to create something else that was God-like, or at least they thought it was. The provision of God comes next, right? Verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. What's going on here? See, right now, the Israelites had a choice. They could alter or they could alter. They could alter their way of life. They could change the things they're doing or they could take their, their failures to alter to the altar, the AR altar. When they failed to, in conformity to the law of God, they could bring a sacrifice. They could lay that sacrifice, fillet it, lay it down on the altar, burn it up, consume it, bring the fresh aroma of their repentance to their God. See, if you're gonna have law, you have to have recourse when you break the law. And God's providing a means for them by which they might temporarily or think about atonement, right? This is a shadow that's going to point to a greater fulfillment that will be Christ because someday this son of God would come into our midst that he would lay down his life on a cross. He would be lifted up and he would become the sacrifice on the altar. He would become the recourse for our confession, repentance, our restoration before our God. When we were found out of conformity with God's law, God made full provision in the Son, Jesus Christ, for us to be renewed and restored. You and I might be thinking about all the things that we've done this week, all of the failures we've had, our want of conformity to the law of God, but now we look to Christ, we look to the cross, and we know that we're no longer condemned. Because Christ has taken our condemnation in full. He took our sins to the cross. He laid down his life as sacrifice and payment. He was resurrected in power so that you and I might no longer stand condemned before the righteous, holy God of Mount Sinai. that we might no longer have to backpedal away from the mountain of God. love what he says. He has these restrictions for the altar in verse 25. You shouldn't make an altar of stone. You should make an altar of stone, but not cut stone. What on earth is happening here? Now, just think about this. What would the tendency be for you and I, if we were left to make an altar? We'd make one, we'd make two, make three. And when you get to the fourth, you would make it more sharp, more inviting. And the process, it would be more beautiful, more kind of ritualistic. It wasn't to be made of these cut stones. This sacrificial system was God's. It was not to be manipulated by human craftiness. See, our tendency is to over-spiritualize the reality of what God had given, to kind of paint it with our own processes and try and beautify it and make it something that it wasn't. Alternately, verse 26 describes the opposite tendency is to under-spiritualize. You shall not go up the steps of my altar and show your nakedness. I don't want to spell this out too clearly, but if you wear a robe, you got to wear something under the robe, right? Because nakedness was this sign of guilt, and if you're coming up to the altar to acknowledge your guilt and you're not thinking through this uh, kind of profaneness, God is asking us not to under-spiritualize the altar. Well, not us, but these Israelites, right? There's a way we over-spiritualize and a way we under-spiritualize, and, and God is laying out a process by which we could have hearts of repentance, say, I was wrong. I need grace to offer this sacrifice. This morning, your obedience matters. Yes, you and I, if we are in Christ, we're purified from all sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A Christian, I'm here to tell you this morning, your obedience matters. It's the means by which we remain sensitive to the presence of our God. It's not to say that when you sin, the Holy Spirit just kind of runs away and hides. It's not what I'm describing. Paul tells us that the Spirit is a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. When we disobey, God lovingly turns toward us in a disciplinary measure. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. But instead, our obedience fosters a submission to God, which fosters a keen awareness of his presence. And if you are to walk in step with the Spirit, you cannot do so with a disobedient pattern of life. What God is laying out for his people says, This is how you dwell with me. This is how you walk with me. This is how I tabernacle amongst you, is you have to be obedient. And now, on the other side of the cross, we are fundamentally forgiven. We are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. But I have to tell you, you still have to obey to feel the sensitivities to God's Spirit. It is your blessing in Christ for you to walk in obedience so that you can Be in submission to his presence and to his goodness. See, I wonder this morning, if in the midst of emphasizing God's grace, I wonder if we've lost the importance of a Christ-centered obedience. We have so emphasized salvation by faith alone, which is a right and good thing, that we've lost what it is to obey. We've arrived at this kind of Christian Crowleyism that by God's grace, do what thou wilt. Yes, faith alone saves you, but faith that saves is never alone. It's the warning from James chapter 2. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. See, our God still makes moral demands of his people. And if we are to taste the sweet wine of fellowship with God's grace, we have to start by cultivating the garden of obedience. This week, uh, we had an elder meeting on Tuesday. I love these times. These brothers are sweet fellowship to me. I so appreciate them in so many ways. But we always start off with a, a time of accountability, talk about our lives and how things are going and what's going on. As we went and shared, or it came around to me, and I'm just going to share it openly with you. I felt this week, I felt like my, my heart was hardening. There's this warning in Hebrews where, where the author of Hebrews warns us that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. And I felt like everything inside of me was was wanting to run from responsibility to God. Everything inside of me just wanted to close the Bible, to open my eyes out of prayer, to to not submit, to not send that extra text that would encourage, to not submit to God's law, to kind of become lax in the the moral areas of my life, to, to kind of just throw in the towel. You ever felt like that? Ever felt just tired? You just want to give it up? You feel the slow hardening of your sinful heart. It's not that you want to go out and be Alistair Crowley. You don't want to go out and start, you know, a meth ring of whatever, right? It's that you just want to take a little break from being under someone else's watch. It's just that you want to do things your way for just a season. We feel that slow creep of our sinful nature. And if we don't course correct, that slow creep becomes larger creep. We get handed over to more and more sinfulness. It's funny how God meets us in those moments, you know? Later that week, someone, a friend texted me and asked to have lunch, and we went and grabbed lunch, and he provided, he sat with me and he talked with me about God's grace and God's mercy. And it's like the Lord in His goodness was just pulling me back into the fold, reminding me I'm still here. I'm still gracious. I'm still kind. You can submit to me. This is good. Your way only brings about heartache. Your way only brings about pain. You need to submit to me. didn't understand. I didn't hear those things verbally, right? Through the set of circumstances, I was reminded of a God of grace who pursues us, who doesn't just leave us to fulfill the intricacies of his law. I love the song we sang this morning that was a statement of God's goodness, You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can fill us or lift us from the grave. We are recipients of grace, and what God has started, he will complete. Let's not abandon our submission to his rule and his reign. Let's press in to holiness and righteousness. Let's encourage one another. So that our hearts aren't hardened by sin, I'm just telling you, you cannot do this alone. You cannot live what is laid out. Maybe not in these laws in this chapter, but if we were to turn over pages to the New Testament and outdo one another in showing love, Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. We can't do that by ourselves, relying on our flesh. Let's find the sweet grace of our God. Let's press in. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord, we just pray. We plead with you. Lead us to greater righteousness. Make us holy as you are holy. Lord, I pray for myself, my own wayward heart that wants to just push away from your authority and your sovereign care. I pray that you would invite me back time and time again to your grace. Lord, keep me. Keep us. And allow us to be motivated by your cross, made new in your cross, so that we might put on patterns of righteousness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.